You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest. I mean, I guess all my guests are very special, (laughs) but this one is very special. He's a friend to Brett McCracken, and he is a senior editor for the Gospel Coalition and the author of several books, including Uncomfortable, Hipster Christianity, which came out in 2010, I believe, and uh, Gray Matters. And the book we're going to talk about today is called The Wisdom Pyramid his most recent book. And the subtitle of this book is feeding your soul in a post-truth world. And one of the quotes from the introduction, uh, what this book is all about is it's a plan for stabilizing a sick society by making Christians wiser, God fearing, trustworthy truth tellers and truth livers, salt and light. So welcome Brett McCracken. Thank you, Beckett. Thank you so much for having me. Glad you're here. Um, you look like you're in a in a closet, but uh, I don't know. It's a very small room. It is, it is an office, <laughs> but it does kind of look like a large closet. So okay, good. All right, for it's not as cool looking as yours. Oh right, right. My big spacious living room. Is that a um, fig plant behind you? By the way, that's a very that's. Cool. I know it's a. I think it's a fig plant, and it's it's getting a little out of control. I don't really know what to do about it. Yeah, um, it's touching the ceiling. That's it's about to kiss. Well, it is kissing the ceiling, so yeah. I don't know wh- when to chop it down, some of it. I'd say just let but it go. yeah, I'll just keep it going until mm-hmm. until further notice. Um, so we're going to talk about your book, The Wisdom Pyramid, today. And I love this book. I, I read it, I think, last week, or I can't even remember now. It's been so crazy, but I love it. And uh, first of all, but some people might might not know the food pyramid. So where did you get the idea of the wisdom pyramid? Yeah, yeah. So it it is like a direct kind of rip off of the food pyramid. But um, I'm guessing most people remember the food pyramid from their childhood health, you know, curriculum. But essentially, the food pyramid was a kind of visual aid for what food groups to eat and in what proportion in order to be healthy to be physically healthy so if you if you comprised your diet of the food pyramid kind of suggestions and theory you would be physically healthy so essentially i got the idea for the wisdom pyramid because i was thinking about how our spiritual health and mental mental health is also in large part dependent on intakes right what what comes into our soul will make us either spiritually healthy or spiritually sick so what constitutes your diet um of of kind of idea intakes Mm -hmm. matters right so we need to pay attention to what's coming into us and so i thought like what if i use the food pyramid um framework or metaphor to apply this to wisdom and and spiritual life what would it look like you know to kind of structure your your um diet of intakes in that regard, in a, in a well-proportioned way. So that was the idea. And um, I, it was like, I think probably like five years ago um, when I first came up with it because I was asked to speak at a conference um, on the topic of kind of wisdom in a post-truth era, like how mm-hmm. can Christians be wise in this post-truth world that we're living in? And so as I was preparing my talk for that conference, I was, I first started thinking along these lines of like intakes are really a huge part of it and kind of what comes into our, our soul. So really, you know, in order to be wise, we just need to build a healthier diet of intakes. And so I I scribbled down the wisdom pyramid as like a rough draft on like a napkin and, (laughs) and um, it more or less, you know, looks like, what, what you see today on the book cover, it has changed a little bit over the years, but um, I sent it to a designer friend. He like made it look cool. 
um, the first iteration doesn't look like the book cover that you have right there, mm -hmm. um, but you can find it online if you Google it. Uh, you can see the first version. But yeah, that's kind of how it all came about. Yeah, and I mean, we'll get into the layers the, the in the pyramid. Obviously, the bottom layer is the Bible, but we'll get into that in a minute. But you say in the book that um, there's two, first of all, the book is cut is uh, in two parts. There's part one is the sources of our sickness mm -hmm. and part two is the sources of our wisdom. So in part one, uh, in chapter one, you talk about information gluttony. <laughs> first of all, what is, what do you mean by information gluttony? And just, could you give us, cause I think you talk about five of the symptoms, but could you just give us one or two of those symptoms mm -hmm. of information gluttony? Yeah. So, you know, I tried to make parallels throughout the book to eating food and kind of the same things that lead you to poor physical health with, with bad eating habits. There's kind of parallels in the information consumption world. So just like eating too much food, you know, gluttony is bad for your physical health. Uh, the same is true of information and never before have we lived in a, a world that is quite as inundated with information and it's easier than ever to be an information glutton, right? Like we all open up our phones and it's as if we're like going to the world's longest buffet line, you know, where there's tons of like horrible for you, like junk food junk everywhere, food full of <laughs> preservatives and all sorts of bad things. So that's, that is what we do when we open up our phone. It's it's like a binge diet of junk food, essentially. And so the information overload, you know, why it's a problem, why it's leading us to sickness. I'll just mention a couple things that I talk about in the book. Um, one has to do with actual neuroscience that has been really interesting to read about. Um, the brain is actually changed in a digital environment such as this, where there's so much information, so much uh, stimulation coming at us. Um, our brains are like literally um, being rewired so that because we're spinning, our brains are spending all of their energy on the kind of surface level, uh, like triage. Like I have to like, there's so much coming at me every second of every day on my Twitter feed, you know, <laughs> on when I look at the news, it's like, um, it's like a funny YouTube video of some prank next to a, a headline from CNN about an assassination in Japan, uh -huh. you know? And so our brains are like, okay, is this in important information? Do I need to file this away? Or is this trivial information? So you can start to see how our brains are being overtaxed and overburdened in the digital age. And what researchers are finding is that, um, what ends up happening is the brain is doesn't have reserves of energy left to kind of do that deeper work thinking of critical thinking evaluative thinking um so you know if you if you look at people around you today and you you start to wonder like man people people seem dumber than they used to be like there's actual science to show that that's true right <laughs> like people have literally lost the ability to think deeply because our brains are, are being rewired, reoriented around this information glut that is coming at them all the time. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I, I miss the landline uh, because before cell phones, before, yeah, I don't know if anyone remembers this, but there were actual landlines and that was kind <laughs> of like letters and calling someone on the phone were the only ways to communicate. And um, now it's just like you're in, and I mean, we're all inundated with not just like, there's so many ways for people to access, uh, access us through text messages, you know, phone calls, DMS, messenger things. And, um, and it's just, it's so in emails and it's so overwhelming. It's just like, you, it's like, as soon as you finish answering a text, you get like a DM or you get, you know, an email and you're just like, well, where am I? It's like so disorienting at times for me. It's, I mean, it is, but I just, yeah, it's, it's like so much <laughs> all at once. Whereas in, in the past, it was like, you know, you actually had to call. If you really wanted to talk to someone, you had to call them and you had to like talk to them, you know, on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's overwhelming. And I, yeah, I mean, the, 
the amount of communication methods and things like yeah i listed it out one day like like a year ago and it was just like it made me nauseous just thinking <laughs> about like the 20 ways that people can contact me yeah um, but yeah i mean another another part of the the glut of information that i think is really problematic is when there's like infinite space for information to exist um which that's what the internet that's what the cloud is it's this infinite real estate for for all manner of information to find a home there's there's real estate available for whatever blog whatever you know substack tumblr you know conspiracy theory dark web there's space for everything and what ends up happening in an environment like that is you can find any truth that you're looking for right and we all yeah. know this right whatever you think is true about the pandemic for example you could just google and instantly like dozens of results will show up on google <laughs> that back you up and and back up your opinion and we see this play out on any number of issues that our culture is at war over like because the internet is infinitely large and information is available for every possible perspective every little political you know subgroup um every conspiracy theory group it just in it, it what ends up happening is truth is eroded generally because everyone's lowercase t truth can thrive and flourish right. and find a following online. Um, so there, that's another reason why it's making us foolish. I think this, this too much information, you know, and it's there, that's the first line of the book, right? Like we live in a world with more and more information, but less and less wisdom. So I actually, yeah. think, I actually think there's a inverse correlation with the more information we have at our fingertips. It actually, erodes our wisdom yeah and in a chapter in the second chapter you you it's called perpetual novelty and i want to ask you about one aspect of that but what what did you what do you mean by perpetual no novelty so if if the first problem is the too much information problem perpetual novelty speaks to the too fast problem of how our digital age just moves faster than wisdom would call us to move so this this constant uh, need to kind of feed the beast of the internet with like new content new breaking news right there's this yeah is that what you mean by per perceptual presentism yeah yeah it's it's like think of the new think of the news cycle right like what was like breaking news everyone was talking about it everyone was uh, opining about it yesterday on Twitter, like today, we can't even remember what that was. We've moved on to something else. Like mm -hmm. it's the perceptual presentism is just the internet's orientation around the now and kind of moving through what's trending now, what's buzzing now. And it ends, it ends up being a liability for wisdom because wisdom is so much about a bigger picture view, right? It's, it's about drawing from the past and being able to look ahead to the future and the downstream consequences. But in a consumeristic kind of culture where we're oriented around, you know, pleasure and diversion in the now and what's going to get clicks and likes in the now, it's just, it's a very, it's an unwise approach to the world, I think. I know it's tempting to join a monastery. Um, and you, <laughs> I have been tempted more than once. <laughs> I have a friend actually who goes there. I think there's some monastery in, in Malibu and you can go and just kind of sit quietly for, and stay there for a few days or whatever. And it sounds so tempting to do that. Um, but you get in, in, in chapter three, we're still in the, the sources of our sickness part. Uh, you get into, uh, it's, it's called look within autonomy, the idea of follow your heart. Do you, you do you. So what, what do you mean by this look within autonomy? And, uh, and then I'll ask you just a, a question about this. Yeah. So to go to use like a, an eating metaphor, um, just like eating too much food is bad for you. Eating food too fast can be bad for your health. Um, eating food that only, looks good to you or only eating that which 
you like to eat, that, that which tastes good to you, but not necessarily what is nutritious or good for you, that's bad for you, right? And, and yet in our culture today, um, both philosophically and I think in the very structure of information in the digital age, it's all about orienting around you and kind of, you know, go with what, go with what feels right for you. Like click on that thing because you want to watch it. That's what you like to watch, right? The yeah. algorithms, the, the, the ever savvier algorithms of social media and Netflix and everything else, they are huge money makers for Silicon Valley because they play into this, right? They feed on, they figure you out. They figure yeah. out what you want and what you have a, a track record of clicking on and being tempted by. And they, they, they're ever more kind of sophisticated and feeding you more of what you like. But anyone knows in the realm of eating that if I only had a diet of like the things that I like the most, in my case, you know, chocolate chip cookies and black coffee. If I only ate chocolate chip cookies and black coffee, I would die, right? Like, and, and yeah, <laughs> but you die happy at least. <laughs> I would die happy, right? Um, so, with information, it's the same way. You know, we we become more foolish to the extent that we are fed this steady stream of content that reinforces our bias, that just kind of agrees with us, that um, scratches our itches in all the ways we want them to be scratched. And what's really scary and dangerous is that the algorithms that I just talked about, like, are making it so that this is the experience of our digital world. No two people are experiencing the same reality of the world, yeah. you know, because everyone's feeds are tailor-made for them. And so even like a, a, a breaking news experience, like, uh, let's use like the latest mass shooting that happened last week like some w one person will have an opinion about it by virtue of all the things that show up in their twitter feed that are tailored to their taste another person will have a different completely different view right and, and so there's it's no wonder that we were we're kind of at an impasse in our culture on so many of these debates because the different sides are coming at these topics with completely different realities that have been shaped in completely different echo chambers. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas a generation ago, the world that you and I grew up in, like we, there were like three news channels and that's it. So yeah. more or less, we were all experiencing the world in the same way. Now, were those three news channels biased at times in certain directions? I'm sure they were, but at least we had kind of common language to come to discourse, you know, around. Yeah. And that's not the case anymore with this endlessly fragmented to each their own reality, which again is just a layer that's added on top of the philosophical posture, which has been, you know, in the, in the making for centuries of this kind of look within yourself epistemology, kind of like what Carl Truman, I know you've had him on yeah. your show. But that like what he writes about in the rise and triumph of the modern self is basically the long, you know, history of truth being something outside of the self to becoming gradually something that we assume is just within ourselves to define yeah. as we as we wish. So that, that's yeah. what the third problem is all about. Yeah. It's like a bespoke. I was just thinking of, of a word for that. It's like bespoke content is what we have now. It's all yeah. tailor made to us. Because I, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, I'm older than you. So when I was a kid, there was the day you got the morning paper mm -hmm. and then there was one, there was the evening news, which was only an hour at 6 p.m. Like that was all the news you got That's for the long. day. And, and now we're inundated with news and news and, 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 and media and, uh, and, and all that. So yeah. it's very, it's very rattling and, you know, obviously you find we find ourselves i mean i do find myself just in the day being kind of agitated and i and i don't know why and i and then i stop and reflect on it. i'm like wait a minute it's because i've been looking at the news all day and it's just and i've realized like 99 percent of the news is gossip 
Like, why, why do I need to know about a building that fell down in Louisiana? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And that just like, that just gives me anxiety for no reason. Right. It's like unnecessary <laughs> stress and anxiety. Yeah. I mean, it's no wonder that anxiety levels are rising. Yeah. Yeah. And because we're all like exposed to way more bad news than any generation of humans ever were exposed to. And in the in this chapter, you 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 have a section called the depressing dead end of your truth. Mm-hmm. What talk about that? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we hear this phrase like bandied about in our culture, like live your truth. You know, your truth, my truth, whatever. And even though it's kind of a cute like saying that looks nice on a coffee mug. <laughs> In reality, it doesn't like logically, it just doesn't, it doesn't work, you know, (laughs) and like an example that I use sometimes when I'm talking about this is think about like traffic laws. Like if we applied this kind of your truth, my truth approach to life to like traffic laws, like it would be chaos because I could say like my truth is red means red means go and green means stop. Your truth can be the opposite, but it it wouldn't work. There would be crashes and collisions and death and mayhem. So just look at the world around you and you very quickly can come to see that that doesn't work. Like your truth and my truth it doesn't work to live in community in any capacity to live with other people in a society necessarily requires that both parties submit to a truth that is independent of what my opinion is about that truth or what I wish that truth were. So it just doesn't work logically. And the other thing that I talk about with, the de- the depressing part i think of the dead end of your truth is that it's it's lonely you know yeah it's, um i i think that when i hear someone talk about like you know this is just my path this is just my life that i'm going to just like take and oftentimes you know it 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 means that i'm like veering in a different direction than my family than my parents and i'm just mm-hmm. going to i'm going to like pave my own way what ends up happening is you you isolate yourself increasingly from others because if if what matters most is my heart and what where it leads me to go how can you ever meaningfully connect with another person like because meaningful connection in community requires as i said it requires the humility to submit to something that maybe isn't your preference or isn't where your heart is leading yeah for the sake of the other you're willing to set aside your preferences so it's just an isolating thing and you you become burdened by this existential weight of like wow like if if my life really is mine to construct entirely you know with everyone else's opinions not really mattering even my closest family then it just yeah, it just, it curves in on itself, right? Your, your world just becomes ever smaller and yeah. that's, that's, that's no way to live. It's so much more satisfying t- to live in a, in a world where we're interdependent on others and where, where my selfhood, my existence is actually defined in part by others. Like, you know, in my marriage, like I would actually, if people ask me like, who is Brett McCracken? Like, I would actually ask them to ask my wife, like, let her tell you, like, let my kids speak to that. Like, I I can try to like define myself, but I am I am meaningfully um, made as a person in the context of others and in the context of community. And so and that's just only in a very Western individualistic culture, like you know, America or contemporary, you know, Western Europe, does this idea even become plausible that like, I can just create my truth or live my truth. Um, Yeah. So yeah. And again, like that kind of isolation, and leads to so much, you know, anxiety, depression, I mean, skyrocketing and suicide and all all kinds of all manner of uh, pathology in the in, in the culture. 
Yeah. Uh, but now we're going to move to the good news or yeah. to, to better things. Yeah. That um, was part two of that was your book. <laughs> part two of your book. So we, you get into the wisdom pyramid and mm-hmm. in the introduction, you talk about what the wisdom pyramid is and what it isn't. Can you just briefly say what that is? And then we'll get into the levels of it. Um, yeah. Let me see if I can remember what, <laughs> what exactly I said in that. I mean, I, I think the, the parallel to the food pyramid only goes so far. So what, it, what the wisdom pyramid isn't is like a highly prescriptive um, guide where I'm, where I'm saying like, you have to have four to five helpings of the Bible each day and right. three to four helpings of church. And so it doesn't work out in quite the same way that the food pyramid does with like mathematical precision. It's more just a general like rubric yeah it's it's kind of like a visual that you should look at it and be reminded oh okay yeah that that's right like a a wise life looks something like that where where my my proportions are oriented more around the things of god and less around my smartphone you know yeah so i would say that's kind of where it differs a bit from from the food pyramid yeah and you the first obviously the first layer is the i do you call it a layer or what is that what's that called i usually call it a level but level the first level layer, is is um the mm. bible is the word of god and you know it's the bread and like it's our daily bread man yeah. shall not live by bread alone by yeah. by every word um so and it's so tempting you know it's because i this i'm sure a lot of people deal with this, but I, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is grab my phone and I see, you know, emails, text messages, notifications, things. And, and it's so tempting to just like jump into that and respond Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and check the news and see, you know, who got assassinated today or last night. Um, And it's so hard. It's, it takes a lot of diligence and discipline to say, no, <laughs> I'm going to sit down right now. And the first thing I'm going to do is read the word of God yeah, and be nourished by that. Yeah. And it is hard. And I, you know, that's one like habit tweak that I made as I was actually writing the book. Um, my, my dear wife was like, you know, as I was writing the book, she was like, you better be like living this. You better like make some adjustments in your life. So they, so that you're practicing what you're preaching. And so I did. And one of the tweaks that I made was exactly what you're just describing, Beckett. Because I, I, I as well was in the habit of like pulling my phone out immediately when I woke up. And usually like the last thing I did before bed was, yeah. you know. And so the change that I made was um, I don't look at my phone for the first hour of every day. I try my best to like literally like go an hour at the beginning of every day where I do not even touch a device, my phone, my computer. And, and that time is then used to do things like reading the Bible and having breakfast with my kids and maybe going on a walk. And it's just, I like, I, I know that that like habits like that seem like small changes, but it has made so much difference in my life. Just that tweak, because when the phone is the first thing you look at, it just sets it sets the tone for your day and it kind of, it declares something over your existence that somehow like this device is controlling controlling you. And and it, it, it does kind of occupy that foundational layer of your personal pyramid. If it's the first thing you do when you wake up. And so to just like push it away for an hour uh, has felt really freeing. And um, it actually has, uh, given a jump start to my like devotional life and prayer life and things like that. So I would highly recommend that because reading the Bible, let's be honest, it's not easy to like get in the habit of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not easy even in, even if you're not distracted by technology, it's, it's a hard habit because it's such a old book to us and it's difficult to understand. And culturally it's far away from our current context. So it's already challenging. But so whatever you can do to kind of at least remove distractions and carve out some space to to do it is important, I think. 
Yeah, I think of Dick Lucas. Uh, he once said, I always quote this. He, he once said, well, I'm giving into the pressure of the world or the pressure of the world word. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, it's true. It's like if you're not kind of saturated in the word or you're it's you're the world. It, we're never in neutral. We're never just kind of floating in neutral. We're we're being shaped by the world or by the word. And so that it's so crucial to be in the word as much and, as possible. And I'm, t- I'm preaching to myself. Uh, while I'm and saying I, that. I, I often remind people like there's creative ways to do this. Like it doesn't always have to look like pull out your leather bound Bible. And like, Oh yeah. I listen to audio Bible while I'm doing the dishes. Yeah, like, like listen to the audio Bible. Like instead of filling your soul with, you know, cable news, political talk shows when you're doing the dishes or when you're driving in the car, like put on an, the audio Bible or even like music that is like inspired by the Bible or like I, one of my current obsessions musically is like finding really quality Christian music that essentially just takes verses of the Bible and puts it to music. Um, like there's a great artist named Will Carlisle who he just came out with an EP that takes four scriptures and puts them to song. And it's stuff like that, that like, for me, it's, it's so helpful because it's, you're totally right. Like every minute of our day, our soul is either be either being formed by the world or by the word. And mm-hmm. so take every opportunity you can to be shaped by the word, whether it's music that you're listening to, that's inspired by the word of God or, or church or listening to sermons that are, you know, unpacking, yeah. unpacking the word of God. Um, we just, so there's lots of ways to do it. Um, but just find, you know, opportunities to to look to the word for nourishment. Yeah. And speaking of church, that's the next level on the in the pyramid. And, you know, we live in this obviously individual, individual individualistic age. And um, I have friends, you know, who 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 say, you know, I don't need to go. Why do I need to go to a local church? I don't I just it's just me and God. And, you know, that whole it's very common in our culture now. And um. What would you, I mean, what would you say? I mean, you say a lot in in the chapter on the church, but you talk about um, the wisdom of community in this individualistic age. Just kind of talk about that briefly. Yeah, I think that's the big piece. Uh, it, it, It goes back to that third problem that we talked about, the look within yourself kind of epistemology where, where it's, it's kind of like isolate yourself from the community around you and just kind of go with what you're, yeah. where your heart leads like if that is a major source of foolishness for us then it stands to reason that wisdom can be gained by doing the opposite by actually leaning into the wisdom of community and submitting yourself to the input and the wisdom of others and i think that's what the local church is it's a gift that god gives us for our wisdom for our spiritual formation um, because it's hard to grow as a lone wolf, you know, any, anyone, anyone who has tried to like do anything, like even like fitness, like trying to like uh, yeah. get in shape, it's hard to do that alone. Like yeah. you, have, you have to do that in community. It's why like, um, you know, team sports are helpful because you're all out there on the field practicing together. Um, so we grow in life necessarily i think in community and so it's just bogus to say like i can just have my own spirituality as a solo you know okay like (laughs) you're never gonna grow that way like you're just gonna kind of you're gonna live life as you see fit and maybe you'll like sprinkle a little bit of jesus on top as it suits you but if you submit yourself to community you're really gonna um open yourself up to true transformation and true, true growth. And, and one other thing that is great about the church is if the Bible is the most important source of wisdom as the direct revelation of God. And yet, as I said, it's hard to understand sometimes. And we, you know, sometimes we're like, what, I don't understand (laughs) what is going on in this verse. Like, I don't understand what's happening here. Well, that's, that's where the gift of, a church community can really help as a, as an interpretive community of God's word. And that's what, that's what the church has been for 2000 years. Essentially it's an interpretive community 
of the word of God, where, where collectively you're trying to understand what is God saying to us and how does that apply in all these different areas of day-to-day life. So. Yeah, and and the writer of uh, Dick, I'm going to quote Dick Lucas again. I just thought of this, but he uh, he's he did a lecture series in Hebrews, and he's he talks about you know the verse exhort one another mm-hmm. daily, and he's and he says, dear Christian, did you know what this writer say? We cannot go 24 hours as Christians without being exalted. Is that striking? Um, so it's like we need, yeah, I mean, we need that community to mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, I've noticed not not just to encourage and edify us, but also yeah. to exhort us and say, hey, I've noticed like you're, sure. you know, you've been doing such and such and I'm, I'm a little concerned and you need that community to like say, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I was going astray and kind of going off the path. Yeah. So the church is, is vital. Um, you talk about... Uh, you talk about, I mean, I, the the Chris Pratt, Ellen Page story you, you mentioned in this chapter. Yeah, that's timely all of a sudden. And how that betrays yeah. the times we live in. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, so I'm trying to remember exactly what I said, but I think I was referencing like Chris Pratt in, in his, you know, he's often accused of like being associated with churches that have, anti-LGBT stances and his response you know Chris Pratt being Chris Pratt he's Mr. Nice Guy and he wants everyone to like him and he wants to be a people pleaser Um, he essentially disassociates himself from the church and and says like well even if I went there or even if I go there every now and then like it's like my faith is my faith and I'm not I'm not bound to the church. And I just, I, it bugs me because that is just the way of the world, right? That's just the, yeah. that's just, that's essentially just this, your truth approach. Like in, and the, your truth mindset is very um, infiltrated in Christianity, right? It's the spiritual, but not religious you know, idea that like, I don't need an institutional church to define my relationship with Jesus and what I, how I interpret certain passages of the Bible. Like, I don't need a church to like weigh in on that. My opinion is my opinion. Right. That's just, it's, it's not, I can see how that helps you in PR in terms of like avoiding association with institutions like the church, which have baggage a lot of times culturally, but it says it's not going to work out for you in your, in your spiritual life to just kind of always, always choose yourself and your view over the communal communal confession. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The wise. And, and then the next level is nature. And uh, I, it's funny because I, not that this is necessarily nature, but for the, I think starting a couple, a couple of years ago, I, I guess during the pandemic, I started driving to Beverly Hills, which is like 10 minutes from where I live and going on a daily walk. Not that Beverly Hills is nature necessarily, but I was um, say, where in Beverly Hills is that <laughs> it's not a Yellowstone park, but mm-hmm. it's just like those daily walks have, have really changed the way I feel every day, not, I mean, it's, first of all, it's healthy, but secondly, it just has, it's just given my brain and my, my mind a time to just relax and reflect. And sometimes I, you know, I pray during the walk. Sometimes I listen to music, whatever. Sometimes I listen to po- uh, podcasts, uh, uh, Michael Heiser. I sometimes listen to Michael Heiser podcast, but, but yeah, talk about, you you say in, in one, in one part of this, chapter you say that nature is a source of wisdom talk about that a little bit yeah so i think the big idea in terms of why nature can be a source of wisdom for us is that you know wisdom is from god god is the arbiter the standard the the giver of wisdom and that's why his special revelation in the bible is the first level that's why it's the most important it's why the church, which is God's institution that he founded, it's his community. 
that's why that is a source of wisdom. And it's also why nature is the third most valuable source of wisdom because nature is God's creation. It's his handiwork, you know? So there's, if wisdom is found in proximity to God, then it stands to reason that when we're out in creation and we're truly in tune with it and observing it, and we have eyes to see and ears to hear, you know, this world that God designed in a certain way, there's a lot of wisdom to be gained Mm -hmm. there. And even the Bible directs us to do this, right? Like um, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky proclaims. So there's this sense in which God's creation speaks to us in in a way about him, just like, you know, any piece of art. Like if you go to like, uh, the Tate Modern in London, and you look at like a Mark Rothko painting, like you you can learn some things about the type of guy Rothko was. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you look at v- Vincent Van Gogh's version of Starry Night, like you can start to surmise like what kind of man Van Gogh was. And the same is true of God's masterpiece, this world that he created. Yeah. There, there are things about God that we can glean um, by virtue of looking to nature and anything that we learn about God or anything that points us to think about God and worship God, it's going to be good for our wisdom. So, man, I mean, there's a lot, I think there's a lot about nature that is good. You, you, you mentioned earlier, like you went on walks and it, it just, you feel healthier. You feel like your brain can rest a little bit and, I think that connects to what I was saying earlier about our brains are just so exhausted and overstimulated. And that leads us to foolishness because there's no room in our brain to, to think deeply. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is why people, whenever someone needs to like make a big life decision or really contemplate something, what do they do? They like, they go on a walk or they like go to a cabin in the woods for a few days. Like I think humans intuitively know that like being in nature is kind of being in your rightful place in a sense as, as a created being, like being in creation, something just feels right about that. And you gain clarity and your, your soul kind of starts to sync up and and fire on all cylinders when you're in nature so but the problem is we live in a digital age where we're filling every moment of our lives with more and more mediation and content and half the time when you're walking down the street in a beautiful part of the world like southern california where you and i live what are people doing they're just like (laughs) they're buried in their phone (laughs) And there's like hummingbirds around them and beautiful trees and the sun and the ocean. And so it's just a shame because I think there's so much wisdom to be gained by being attuned to nature. And yet at the same time, we're more and more distracted and drawn out of the realm of creation. And that's why, and we can, this is a whole other conversation, Beckett, but I I touch on it in the nature chapter. Like I think, Part of why something like transgenderism has become um, palatable as an idea in our culture mm-hmm. is because we live in this virtual digital world where we're ever more disembodied, right? In our, yeah. in, our, in our experience of life, we're ever more removed from physical reality. So we have our avatars on social media and we present ourselves one way on instagram and it could be totally different from who we really are in physical flesh and so this disconnect that the digital age has cultivated between the material world god's creation and this ethereal realm of how we express ourselves or our personhood you know only in a world like that where we've we've started to distance ourselves from the physical world, including our own physical bodies. Only, only in that world can we start to have these crazy ideas about like transgenderism and like, yeah. Transhumanism, transracism, like everything, you know, yeah. Like as if our personhood has no connection to our biology or, you know, this, this this thing that I'm touching, like my personhood doesn't have anything to do with that. Like that's a strange idea. So 
That's a really good point. And then uh, the next level is books um, in the, in the pyramid. So, and you know, some, some Christians might say like, all I need is the Bible, but, but there is wisdom in reading books. And you talk about that in this chapter Mm -hmm. and you um, give us just, you talk about some, some of the advantages of reading books other than the Bible, but give us just one or two advantages of reading books. And you, you, you recommend reading old books particularly, but just, yeah, talk about that for a sec. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of benefits to it. I mean, the one thing that I think is helpful to is not only the content of books, but the the form of books, Mm -hmm. Um, because we are made more foolish, I think, in this kind of surface level experience of internet, social media, where we're just scrolling, and it's like a bite sized idea here and a headline there and a TikTok video there, like, and we're so fragmented and we, we fail to like make connections and we're, we're losing the ability to think critically. Reading a book helps rewire our brains to, mm-hmm. to think critically because what you do when you read a book is you, you give your attention to, to one author's perspective for an extended period of time. And you are, you're kind of forced to... <laughs> go a little bit deeper than that surface level experience of the internet. And so I just think, you know, in, in some ways I want to just tell people like read any book, like reading, just read books because just the very act of going deeper is, is helping your brain to think critically. But beyond that, I mean, there's just so much value in learning to engage with other people's arguments. And that doesn't mean you agree with them. And that's one thing I want to tell Christians who are maybe afraid of like, do I really want to like expose my heart to um, a book written by a non-Christian or, uh, you know, even like a book written by an atheist? Like, is that wise? And I actually think that we need to get out of that mentality of like fear and embrace the, the um, challenge, but like the richness of, learning how to read a book where on one page you might like underline something and say like, yes, that's good. And on the next page, you might like put a big X through it and, and write like no in the margins and that's okay. Right. Like that's, that's what being a critical thinker is. It's the ability to like entertain a thought without assenting to every aspect of it. Um, And so even in my own writing, like I, I tell people like when you're reading the wisdom pyramid, I hope that there's like some aspects of it that you would, would challenge or like write a question mark by because you, you're not quite sold on it. Like what I don't want is people to read books and be like a hundred percent, like everything in this book is completely true and good. Like that's not true of any book except for the Bible. Right. Cause every book that has ever been written, has been written by a fallible human. Except Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> okay, maybe Pilgrim's Progress is infallible. Anyway, so I think the books help with critical thinking. That's mm-hmm. the long and the short of it. Yeah. And then the next level is beauty. And, you know, you, you kind of referenced this before, but um, there, you know, there's beauty is so nourishing to the soul. And, if you know, it, whether it's you know, a cathedral in Rome or, you know, a painting at the Tate or, um, you know, just nature, it beauty really just like takes us out of ourselves and it nourishes us. And, and you talk about how beauty helps us rest. Mm-hmm. What talk about that for a sec. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, rest is actually like a, a theme that surprised me when I was writing this book that it keep, it kept coming up as like a source, a source of wisdom. Um, in contrast to this, like always on a digital world where we're like hyper productive, we have to optimize every moment, you know, we have to like do, 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 do fill every moment with content. You know, I have to pull out my phone, do something on my phone in the 10 seconds that I'm sitting at a stoplight because I have to be that productive. Like, I actually think that that kind of posture of like thinking that my existence 
he needs to be justified by like doing things all the time is actually the source of foolishness because it we, it can start to delude us into thinking we are like God, right? Right. Whereas being aware of your limitations and humbling yourself to like recognize that I need to rest. I need to, I need to sleep. I need to slow down. Like it's okay to not be productive all the time. Like mm -hmm. that's actually deeply helpful for our wisdom because again, we're wise in so far as we're oriented around God and aware of God and looking to God more than to ourselves. And so I think rest just speaks to our dependency on God. And I think beauty in my experience really helps us slow down and in, in order to really like appreciate something beautiful you have to you have to like slow down you have to focus you have to like focus your attention on this painting or this film or this symphony that you're listening yeah. to you, it, it heightens your senses in in a, in a in an overstimulated world where our senses are just like we're, are inundated to the point of being numb, like we need beauty to kind of re-sensitize us and re-enchant us. And, um, you know, it's significant that God himself, right, after he created the world, he he saw that it was very good. And, and he had the Sabbath right after that. And we have the Sabbath too. We have this day of rest where I think it's good to just rest in the abundance of God's world, of his creation, you know, enjoy beautiful things, sit down and have a long, beautiful meal. Don't rush to the next thing. Mm -hmm. There's so much wisdom in that. And so beauty um, is essential in our diet and we need to make time for it. And I think that even in, in some ways, like we approach beauty as a consumer where we're like, I need to binge watch this show on Netflix that I've been meaning to watch. And then I'm going to move on to this thing on Amazon Prime and then I, oh and then I've been meaning to listen to this album on Spotify that's not a good approach to beauty because then it's just more yeah more disposable content but if you truly like take the time to like sink your teeth into like something and savor it um, I think there's a lot of, of nourishment to be had yeah and the the pen penultimate chapter is uh, on internet and social media and you know, I have a ambivalent hate, hate relationship mm -hmm. <laughs> in social media. No, I, I mean, I, I sometimes, you know, I say this sometimes that, you know, social media is say, one of Satan's masterpieces, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, you talk about in chapter nine, the five habits of cultivating wisdom online. What, what, what it's just one or two of those habits. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think slowing down is a good, a good thing to, to go back to like the speed of things on the internet is, is so, um, conducive to foolishness. We oftentimes have to like, um, backtrack something that we, something that we tweet, for example, before we have given proper thought to whether we, <laughs> whether we've formed our opinions well. Um, so I think slowing down in how we engage with the internet that can do a wonder to for our wisdom. Um, another thing that I would say is just uh, having a more positive posture to things like social media in, in terms of like, instead of only ranting all the time about something that you're mad about or, mm -hmm. you know, which is so, so often the mode through which we use social media, like, use it to share what's good and true and beautiful. And if, uh, if social media is used by Christians to point people to the lower categories of the wisdom pyramid, like um, let's say we use uh, Twitter, Facebook, whatever, to point people to like uh, a sermon by Tim Keller, where he's unpacking some passage in the Bible in a really helpful way, or, pointing people to a church or something like pointing people to a nature documentary that you you found really enriching for helping you appreciate nature. Like, so that's one thing that I often say, if we use the internet and social media in a way that really points people to those 
more nourishing categories of wisdom in the lower levels, then that's a good uh, way that Christians can be engaging on those platforms. Because it is true that the internet has made connectivity really easy and great. And it's so awesome that like, if I come across an amazing song on Spotify, I can just like pull out my phone and tweet it. And, you know, potentially someone out there is really blessed by that and was, was introduced to a new artist that they weren't aware of. So I think I would love to see Christians like using the internet to share good things and point people to truth um, rather than just adding to the noise of constant clamor and, and anger and rage, which I feel like a lot of Christians just fall into that trap, you know, where they, they're just like bickering on Twitter all day and infighting (laughs) and uh, yeah. Yeah. And so the, and then the last chapter is, is uh, called what wisdom looks like. And you, you talk about three marks of wisdom. Can you just give us one example of a mark of wisdom? Yeah. I think the one that I'll mention is humility. Um, When I think about like (laughs) the wise people in my life, um, it's not necessarily the smartest people um, who often are very aware of their intelligence and they kind of, you know, posture accordingly. The wisest people I know are the ones who, again, are aware of their limits, right? That, that is so much a source of wisdom, I think, is just, is, is just living the truth of what Proverbs 3 says about, like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Like, in all your ways acknowledge him, do not be wise in your own eyes. Like it's, it's the people who get that, who, who do, who don't lean on their own understanding and you have this very humble posture of like lifelong learner. Like there's always more that I need to grow in. I have not arrived at the pinnacle of knowledge or virtue. Like those, those are the wise sages uh-huh. in the world. And and, and yet this is just a total reversal of like the look within yourself kind of, you know, be, yes, like the culture says you should be wise in your own eyes. You should lean on your own understanding. Don't let anyone out there external to you, even your own parents, don't let them tell you that you shouldn't make that choice or <laughs> that you, that are, you know, are something different than you think you are like, wisdom would actually say i'm not the best judge of of truth and even my own identity um so i think humility is just huge of course it's a virtue in the bible that shows up constantly paul is always talking about humility in the new testament and Uh jesus of course philippians 2 like was the perfect model yeah he emptied himself he emptied himself and so as Christians, like we just have to, we have to live that way. And it's actually uh, not only good for our own spiritual edification, but I I think it's good for cultivating wisdom, you know, and and being, uh, living the wise life rather than falling into foolishness, which so often comes from looking within yourself. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because I have to check my Twitter and Instagram. It's been an hour. I'm yep. kidding, guys. But I do, please get this book, The Wisdom Pyramid. It's great. It's 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 wise, and uh, it'll <laughs> encourage you and edify you. Thank you, Brett McCracken, for coming on the show. I yeah. appreciate it. Thanks, Beckett. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, 
and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.